0: Well, if you aren't normally with us, uh, we're doing something a little different than what we usually do. Usually, we're in a book of the Bible and kind of go just verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter. Uh, but what we're doing right now is we are in part four of a five-part series on on marriage. So uh, it's going to be kind of more of a what you might call a topical feel, so we're going to kind of be all over the place in regards to scriptures. There'll be a, a couple places I'll tell you to turn to because we'll be there for a little bit longer, but... Um, that's a little unique compared to what we what we would normally do. So as we prepare to go to God's Word, why don't we, uh, let's ask Him for help once more, and then we'll dive in. Father in Heaven, we need You very much right now. And we pray that as we come to Your Word, that Your Spirit would give Your people understanding. That You would... Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Pray that you would give us hearts that believe it. We pray that you would renew our minds for we have been lied to a lot in regards to sex and sexuality and all of these areas of intimacy that we'll be talking about this morning. Father, we pray that you would remove any kind of barriers that would hinder any of us from hearing things that need to be heard we pray that we would have humble hearts teachable hearts and that god you would use this to strengthen marriages and that you would use it to strengthen those who are waiting upon marriage that, god you might you might use this message in ways that we couldn't even imagine so renew our hearts and renew our minds we pray this in faith Believing that you are God who loves to do these things for your children, in the name of Christ, Amen. Well, sex is is everywhere. It seems in our day, it's at the heart of the songs that people sing for us. It's the the punchline in and you know m- most of the late night stand up routines. It's. Blatant in basically every single uh, primetime sitcom it's it seems to be so intertwined in our thinking that it's hard to find a, a commercial whether it be for, for cheesecake or beefcake that doesn't in some way feel like it just has to put sexuality and sensuality even into buying just everyday items you go to the you go to basically any store and there's pr- provocatively dressed women that are plastered on every magazine cover calling out for for men married or unmarried to 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 look and at the same time telling women that if if you want a man to look that you've got to be as appealing and as revealing as these airbrushed models are pornography is is no longer something that you have to shamefully go to the, the gas station and look someone in the eye to purchase, but rather now it's just a click away on the computer or your smartphone. And of course, these these waves of, of, of sexual messages aren't just for the men. They're targeted at our ladies, at our daughters, and at our wives. The so-called mommy porn of romance novels and Fifty Shades of Grey magic mike movies couples coupled with the increase of bare-chested dudes with you know marble abs on TV all the time sending these these messages about what what sexy is and what sex is supposed to look like and all of these influences begin at a very early age between TV internet magazine and music today's teens consume just under 11 hours of media input daily. The average age of a child's first uh, exposure to pornography is 11. By the age of 18, 93% of boys and 62% of girls have been exposed to pornographic images. The number one consumer of internet pornography is boys ages 12, to 17 I was 10 when I first saw pornography it, it sears in your mind it doesn't go away the influence of these sexual ideas comes at us at an astounding rate and it it shapes our thinking put this together with families that, that don't know how to talk to each other, particularly about sensitive stuff. And then you get goofy churches who, you know, who on, on one side will, will demonize sex and will, you know, say that, or, or just say, you know, we should never talk about this in, in, in church. Or you kind of go the other end of the spectrum where you get pastors who lay in bed with their wives and it's being live streamed for all the Internet to watch. And you get no wonder people are confused in the culture and in the churches about what sex is. It's no wonder that that one of the most common reasons that married couples reach out for counseling is because of issues in their sex life. Many husbands and wives find themselves anxious and and insecure and self-conscious when it comes to this most intimate area of, of life. Many of us bring baggage from from the media or sinful decisions into brand new marriages. And it's because and because it's an, an area that people tend to be embarrassed to talk about, couples will very often not talk about it. And will allow these these issues to remain and to stay in the dark and to cultivate more darkness in. Relationships resulting in all kinds of dysfunction. But by God's grace, we have hope. Because God is a God of hope and a God of healing and a God who does speak to His people to help them to understand how He, the designer of all things, made things to work. And because Christ is Lord over all things, including sex, we can come With hope to his word that he will renew our minds and renew our hearts and heal marriages and relationships and potential relationships, that he can do that. And that's why this morning we are going to look through God's word for answers. To kind of guide us, I've got three questions that we're going to ask and we're going to answer. They are first, what does God say about sex? Just in general, what does God say about sex? Secondly, what does God say about sex before marriage? What does God say about sex before marriage? And then thirdly, what does God say about sex within marriage? What does God say about sex within marriage? Those are our three big questions. You'll find scripture all the way through. Again, I'm happy for this manuscript is, is written out. How much I stick to it, we'll find out. But um, it's written out, and you are happy to have this. Feel free to email me uh, if you'd like to have all these verses. Number one, what does God say about Sex. Well, to answer this, I think we need to start with a verse that's kind of been the theme all the way through this whole series on on marriage. 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says this, That whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So whether you eat or you drink or you wait for sex or you think about sex or you get married and have sex, we are to do this all for the glory of God. What that means is that there's there's a way that that sexual intimacy and all that goes with it, there's a way it's supposed to happen. There's a way that that it, it's supposed to happen that that pleases God and, and brings glory to Him. That that, that through sex we, we approach it in a way that shows that that ultimately what's supreme is God. and what's, What's, what's true is, is his ways and his design, and that, that by faith in responding to these things, trusting him, we show that, that he's, he's greater, that he's greater than, than anything. So, if, if you be someone who thinks that God looks, looks down from heaven on a husband and a wife in their bedroom and freaks out, wondering what's going on, you just got to know that that's not true. God created sex. God created sexual organs and God created sexual orgasms. He did that. God made it. And He gave sex to husband and wife so that He'll be worshiped for being the kind of God who is that good to His people. So let's take this idea that God is glorified in sex and let's think, okay, now. How so? Well, we've got three more truths here under this, this first question. The first one is this, is to know that sex is created by God as an excellent gift. Sex is created by God as an excellent gift. So you're, you're more than welcome to go there. I'm just going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. We see that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the gift of, of sex. Uh, 127 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So God, gave, God, God made people, and he gave them command to make babies. And the way you make babies is through sex. What that means is that God made it. And it says there in verse 31 that everything that he made, including this, this gift of sexual intimacy, is very good. And that is it's pretty amazing when you think about it. That not only did, did God make us in his image, but then he gave, through this gift, the ability to, to produce more image bearers on the earth. And, and that the way he did it is, is in this most most loving and intimate way. I mean, he could have picked something that was much less interesting and much less intimate. Maybe he an egg or whatever. I mean, he could have done anything else. But, like, this is how he chose to do it. And that tells us all kinds of stuff about God. That he's a good God. And it's important for us to understand this from the get-go, that that sex is not an evil thing, but it's an excellent thing. And the reason is because the church, historically, has been just dumb on this, just wrong, just all kinds of wrong. I mean, I could right now read for you all kinds of goofy stuff that people that a lot of us really respect from church history have said about, about sex. About, you know, how they, they feel like before the fall that there was, there was no sexual desire at all and they would have just reproduced in some kind of vegetative state. And one other guy talked about that whenever he felt, he felt sexual desires, he'd throw himself in the, in the bushes of, of thorn bushes so that he wouldn't think about these evil things. Like all kinds of weirdness. But I want you to know that that's not just stuff from back then. There are churches today that, that even teach that sex in and of itself is, is evil. There was a married man who visited a pastor friend of mine, and he told this pastor that he and his wife were having some, some trouble in their sex life. And the husband explained to the pastor that his wife had been raised in a church that taught that sex was evil, even in marriage. And that because of that, even though they had a few children, he had never seen his wife without her clothes on. The pastor you know, asked the logical question, like, well, then how, how do you have kids? And He said that his wife would meet him in the bathroom with lights off, and then afterwards she would jump in the shower and then come out crying asking for forgiveness. Whatever that is, that is not from God. Someone lied to her. And the church has done that in the past. And you've got to know that that sex is not evil. It's a good gift. Secondly, we've got to know that God gave sex as an enjoyable gift. So it's an excellent gift, but it's also an enjoyable gift. This goes hand in hand with the last point. That when, when God gave sex, he gave it as a gift to be enjoyed. Listen to this verse from Proverbs 5:18, where Solomon speaks to his, his sons and to, to all men. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Like, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's actually in the Bible. And so is this, from the Song of Solomon. Just a selection. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Draw me after you. The king has brought me into his chambers, and his banner over me was love sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. Those are aphrodisiacs. For I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Your eyes, your eyes are doves behind your veil. And then he goes on to speak about her hair, and her her teeth, and her lips, and her cheek, and her breasts. All all in ways that, by the way, you got to understand culturally, there's some very interesting things in Song of Solomon. I'll be Happy to help you read through that sometime if you need some help understanding. But he goes on to say, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Much better is your love than wine. Your lips dripped nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. I came to my bride, I gathered, I ate, I drank, be drunk with love. That's in the Bible. This is the book of the Song of Solomon. God is a good God. Who gives good gifts to his people. And he desires us to enjoy what he has made. And sex shows us that, that God desires, he desires a husband and a wife to not just settle for being butler and maid. That's not God's design for married couples. He designed marriage to have passion and intimacy and laughter and enjoyment. And God gave sex not just for pleasure, but or not just for, for procreation, but also for, for pleasure. But with passion comes instruction. It has to, because we do live in a day where pleasure is viewed as paramount, and we often get tempted to trade, to trade God and his ways for God's gifts. So that verse I read you a moment ago from Proverbs 5.18, listen to the context drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. And you got to remember, in this, in this culture, water is invaluable. You're in the desert, okay? Water is an invaluable commodity. Should your springs, and he's going to liken this guy's sexuality to springs of water, okay? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. He says, you can be intoxicated with, with people who are not your husband or wife. That can happen. But he says, no. He says, no, that's, that's a waste. Don't waste the precious gift of your love by being reckless with it and giving it to somebody who's not your spouse. Now, this idea is absolutely mocked in our day. I mean, every, you, got, you know this. The great lie of our day is that if you wait for marriage and these issues that you are selling out. I mean, if you're, if you're going to buy a car, you got to take a test drive. If you're going to be living with somebody for the rest of their life, I mean, you at least got to know. I mean, I've had those things said to me. But that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. God says it is actually a waste to spread yourself all over town or all over campus or all over the office. With lover after lover that that is a waste. And I risk sharing this with you, but but I know it's a waste. Because before my life as a Christian, I was very different. I had lots of different relationships that were dishonoring to other people, and dishonoring ultimately to the Lord. And even after I became a Christian, in my early days I was not a, I was not a pure man. I was at times an immature hypocrite. And I I took things from people that I had no business taking. And I gave away parts of me that I had no business giving away yet. And then I met my wife, a woman who I love very much. And it all kind of crystallized for me on our honeymoon evening. My wife gave me a letter that on the front of it was written to the one that she had written when she was 12 or 13. And in that letter, she, she promised that she was going to wait for that night. And I tell you what, I would have traded everything. I would have traded all, all of those other things to be able to offer the same thing back. Sin lies to you. You've got to know that. It is a lie. God gives enjoyable gifts. But that enjoyable gift is to be reserved for a husband and a wife. wait upon the lord and trust him number 3 god gave sex as an exclusive gift so it's an excellent gift it's an enjoyable gift and it is an exclusive gift in marriage god says that something amazing happens genesis 2:24 a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The husband holds fast to or cleaves to his wife in an exclusive way. They go from being two people living two separate lives to now living in one house with one last name and one bank account. The two become one. They are united emotionally and relationally and spiritually. It's a picture of oneness. And in marriage, God designed husband and wife to be exclusively united in many ways, including the most intimate of ways in this oneness of sex. And this union of sex is, is designed by God to be kind of a, a spiritual superglue that, that unites souls of, of the husband and wife in, in, in the deepest of, of ways. And that is a connection that God gives, and God says this is an exclusive connection. For a husband and a wife. It's not anybody else's. Because, you see, sex in marriage is so much more than just feeling and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a real relational deepening that God does in all of this. Genesis 4.1, the Lord says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. In sexual intimacy, there's, there's, a, there's a deep, sacred knowing. that that sex isn't just supposed to be two bodies together or two strangers together sharing lust, but rather there's a deeper level of knowing and trusting where a man and a woman, they, they finally have found a place that they can let down their guards and they don't have to perform, but rather they are free to deeply know each other over weeks and months and years and decades. in a way that nobody else will ever know you. And that isn't the sex that Hollywood portrays. That isn't the sex that Hollywood says is, is, is you know, the wild, erotic sex. And sometimes sex in marriage is that way, but, but not always. 2 Samuel 12, there's a scene where David and Bathsheba, who had had a child in adultery, the child dies... And then in verse 24 of chapter 12, it says this Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore him a son, and he called his name Solomon. The context is so important that that David was with his wife here intimately in a very solemn time, in a time where they needed comfort. It was a sad time. A time where you shed tears. A time where they just needed to be, to have a safe place together. That's the kind of sex that that isn't about looks or performance or whatever else Hollywood tells you it's about. It's a deeper, mature sexual intimacy. And it's a kind of sexual intimacy that the world will never know because it settles for shallow sharing rather than exclusive commitment. I have a friend named John who's a pastor. Uh, he's uh, He's a counselor in Texas. And he shared how he was, he was meeting with a, with a guy who had been very promiscuous before marriage, and then even in marriage, the guy would, would not remain faithful to his wife. And the guy said to my friend John one time, he said, All right, I just got to know, how in the world do you settle for having sex with the same person for 25 years? How do you, how do, you do that? And my friend John said, uh, he said, who, who said I had sex with the same woman? The guy looked at him. He goes, my wife is not the same woman I married 25 years ago. He says, she is so much deeper and more mature and more godly. And we've been through seasons where there have been great times, and we've been through seasons where there's hard times, and we've been through times where we've cried, and we've been through times where we've laughed. And he says, you will never know what sex is because you are eating cotton candy. You get this in a moment and then it's gone. You keep settling for that when there is a depth that the world will never know that God gives in marriage. And that's why it's an exclusive gift. So God created sex as a good thing. It's an excellent gift. It's an enjoyable gift. And it is an exclusive gift that the designer says, trust me. Trust me, I made this. I know how it works. You don't. I do, he says. Which brings us to our, our second question then. What does God say about sex before marriage? What does God say about sex before marriage? Now, one of the reasons I risk doing this is because um, growing up, I was in the church. I mean, I didn't believe it any more than I believe Bigfoot and unicorns and fairies. You know, I mean, like, but I was there, and my whole time there, what I thought the Bible—I was pretty sure that the Bible taught that if you were married and you had adultery, you were in big trouble, and I was kind of sure that somewhere in the Bible it probably said that you weren't supposed to have sex before you get married. So I just want to—I just want to kind of give you some verses that will help you in case you're wondering about this. Okay, so we could—we could go through tons of them, but I'm going to be at Hebrews 13. If you just want to turn there, just be helpful to just look at for a moment. Hebrews 13, verse 4. And as you turn there, I'm just going to acknowledge that there's all, all kinds of other verses that you could look at, whether Matthew 5 or uh, Matthew 15 or Romans 13 or 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 6, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Thess 4, 2 Tim 2, all the way to Revelation. It's all over the place in regards to this issue. But this one is extraordinarily clear. Hebrews 13, Verse 4 it says, Let marriage be held in, 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 in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So God says here that marriage is to be honored, and directly connected to uh, marriage being honored is the protection of the marriage bed. That, that the marriage bed is to be undefiled, unstained. It is to be reserved for covenant love. The marriage bed is its that place where husband and wife share their most intimate moments, where, where prayers are prayed and love is made, hopes are spoken, fears are confessed, children are conceived, And God says that that place, that place is sacred. And it is to be guarded with reckless abandon. Because God has given that to a husband and a wife. And nobody else, nobody else goes there. God says. So, so, hear this. God doesn't warn us to flee from sex because sex is bad. He warns us to flee from sexual immorality. He gives two kinds there. Sexually immoral is any kind of sexual activity done outside the bond of marriage. Adultery is any kind of sexual activity done outside the bond of marriage when you're married. Okay? So, how much is off-limits? It's all off-limits until you get married. And then within the covenant of marriage, there's all kinds of freedom. We'll get to that more in a moment. But you've got to know that God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy who's just calling you away from, from experiencing true sexual freedom. He's not trying to make you miserable. No, he is a good, loving, gracious father who knows what is best for his children. God calls those of us who are not married to wait in faith for his children. Provision, to wait. And as you wait, it's not just this like, all right, I'm going to wait, I'm going to hold in, am going to, you know, it's, it's not just that. It's not just like, well, I'm going to get a gym membership and I'm going to, you know, run 50 miles a day and I'm going to, whatever it is that you, it's not just that, but it's, it's an actually an act of worship. Where in faith, you're trusting that God knows what you don't know and sees what you don't see and that he has what you need when you need it. And it's this waiting upon him, which is the constant posture of the Christian life, always waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting for Christ's return. And in the same way, we wait in faith, waiting. God has designed that which is most intimate to be reserved for that which is most permanent. That's why he says that sex outside of marriage is a sin. So if you're single, please hear me. Do not believe the lies of about sex that you're hearing. Don't settle for the passing pleasures of sin. Fellas, as you're waiting upon the Lord to give you a bride, do not be deceived into valuing things that are fleeting. Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So young, single dudes, listen up, please. you got to look around and see the godly women who, who love Christ and are following after him. And yes, attraction is important. We have this conversation all the time. Attraction is important. But godliness is the most attractive quality. Because though her physical beauty may fade, there's an extraordinarily high probability of that. Her character will only deepen if she is in Christ. And ladies, you've got to keep trusting and keep waiting upon the Lord. Ask God to bring you a godly man whose direction is heavenward and whose desire is Christ. Don't settle for some guy who's she's like, he might be a Christian. He's been to a church before. Like, don't do that mess, all right? Please. You can't do that. You, you wait for God to bring you a guy like that because that kind of guy is gold. Don't be tricked into thinking that your urges for sex and your what you feel like is a need for companionship are greater than your true need, which is to abide in Christ. Guard your heart against smooth-talking guy, all right? Smooth-talking guy's a liar, okay? He just is. If he doesn't know Jesus, he's lying to you no matter what he says to you. I promise. I've it for a long time. Guard your heart against lies that say that that your weight or your makeup or your wardrobe is going to be what's going to get you a man. That's a lie. It's not from God. Please. God has given you all that you need in Christ. And ask him to help you to trust him. That he will give you a husband if you need one and when the right time is. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for you. He knows. Wait. Trust. And if you're in a relationship, so if you're in a relationship, you've got to guard yourself. The primary way you do this is reject the recreational dating idea, okay? So the goal of a Christian relationship, whether you're dating or courting or whatever you want to call it, is to move towards marriage. So yes, there's a season where you've got to figure out, is this somebody that I want to continue hanging out with? you know, and then, and then who knows how long that period is, but you know have other people kind of helping you think through that. And yes, there's another period where you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm not ready to get married, but I, I want to you know, define the relationship. And don't be weird about it, but just be like, hey, I kind of like getting to know you. Can I get to know you more? Okay, something like that. And then, but you're moving, not just in circles, but you're moving to, like, am I going to marry this person? But as you do, you've got to know, whatever stage you are in this relationship, that even the godliest of couples can be tempted and can fall fall into sexual sin. And you've got to know that with all this stuff, Satan is a crafty, he's crafty. And what he does is he is trying to destroy your marriage before you even get to the altar. That's what he's doing with pornography. That's what he does with every kind of bit of sexual experience you've had in the past. He wants to give you all kinds of mess so that before you even get to that altar, you've got all kinds of weird, perverted, you know, crazy expectations about what sex or life or marriage and all these kind of stuff is going to look like. He wants to mess with you. And particularly for couples who are moving towards marriage, I'm going to give you two particular ways that that Satan wants to come at you, okay? So one is he wants to weaken your trust for each other through sexual compromise. Because when when you compromise sexually with each other, what you are doing is you're communicating to the other person, listen, what's more important than you loving Jesus and walking with Jesus and abiding in him is me getting some kind of need met. That's what you're communicating to them. My needs are more important than what you need, which is Jesus. Now, even if the other person's willing, then you're both in doing it, all right? But, but, but that's what's happening there. And Satan wants to use that to undermine that you can trust each other. Because when you get married, there's little seeds, whether you know it's exactly that or not, that you're going to wonder, if he did that before we married me, what, what, what happens now after we're married? But every time... That you fellas, you gotta lead on this, dude. You gotta lead, okay? So don't be stupid. Don't put yourself in a, you know, I was in the backseat of a car and I got tempted. Yeah, you did, you idiot. Get out of, the, don't do that, okay? No. But you've got to lead on this deal, and you've got to look her in the eyes and say, listen, I, I like you or love you too much, wherever you are in your relationship. I care about you too much to do this. We gotta get out of here. We got we gotta we gotta go stand down in the mall in DC or something. We gotta we gotta get out of here. Fellas, lead in that. Because you don't want to weaken trust. Secondly, Satan wants to deceive you with the forbidden fruit of lust. So this was the thing that most couples be like, ah, that ain't true. Listen, couples who are about to get married, they're like, this one ain't true of me. It's true of you. Hold on. The, the there, There's a world of difference between premarital sex and sex within marriage. You see, in premarital sex, there's an element of, of forbidden fruit where you kind of know you're not supposed to, and that that, that stirs up this, this, this kind of lust that has a very strong power. There's, there's, there's a high passion and feelings are intense. It's kind of like gasoline on fire. But sex in marriage is very different. There still may be passion and there's still intense feelings and emotions and there's seasons of this and that, but, but sex in marriage, long term, is based primarily on, on the hot coals of, of trust, trust and devotion and sacrifice. And if, you, if Satan can get you expecting the wrong thing so that you're constantly disappointed early on and perpetually, he's got you. He's going to wear you out. So God's word is really clear. that We've got to wait for his provision. Stay on guard against the evil one's attacks. Which brings us to our third question. So, married couples, you thought, oh, that's not too specific. Here we go. Number three. Not specific in a bad way, but we need need to be challenged. Number three. What does God say about sex within marriage? What does God say about sex within marriage? Um, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It will be helpful for you to have this open. 1 Corinthians 7. The context as you're getting there is is that the Corinthian church was kind of a really messed up bunch, um, and they were having all kinds of questions about life and theology and all this, and one of those questions was whether or not it was okay to get married, because in marriage, people have sex. And some of the super-spiritual people assumed that it was kind of it was evil to have sex. And Paul is kind of correcting that idea, basically. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they had written Paul, he's writing a bag. And what they said was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he says, I'm going to address that. Well, because of the temptation to to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband, verse 3, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except, perhaps for an agreement of a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, we're going to see three ideas that we're going to Watch through this text. We get right out of here. I'm going to ask some questions that were kind of asked to me about this text. I'm just going to work through it. So the first thing we've got to notice comes out of verse 3, and that is that sex is a commanded service. Sex, within marriage, we've already talked about this, but within marriage is a commanded service. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The word for conjugal rights literally means Duty. And the context makes it really clear that the duty he's talking about is that a husband has a duty to sexually care for his wife, and the wife has a duty to sexually care for her husband. So if you've been looking for those verses, here you go. All right, there they are. Now, one of the questions that I've had about this text is, and you can guess whether this came from a young single married guy, why would Paul need to command married people to have sex? All right. All right, here we go. Well, believe it or not, this is actually a major issue for married couple, couples. because life is busy, which is kind of, especially in this area. I mean, schedules, and you're sapped from energy from the kiddos, and over time, couples grow older. Sometimes it's just low desire by one or even both spouses. Sometimes it's maybe something more serious like medical issues or anxiety issues or betrayal issues. But the reality is that whatever's going on, God gives grace for those circumstances and he empowers us and he empowers couples to act in faith and to make sex a priority in in the relationship. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of my favorite parts of my job is whenever I get to meet with a, a married couple, and then after one, I just tell them, now "Go home and have sex." Like that's—it's I got a verse, man. I got a whole, you know this whole section here. Like I tell them, like go home and and do that, enjoy one another, okay? But the reality is that that whatever is happening here, you, you've got to know that God makes it really clear: husbands are wiser to have sex. Now, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but the Puritans, like, they took this kind of stuff really seriously. Uh, And actually, (laughs) this this one case took place in the First Church of Boston, where James Maddock was excommunicated from the First Church of Boston because he, quote, denied conjugal fellowship unto his wife for the space of two years. They kicked dude out of the church because he wouldn't have sex with his wife. Now, that's, that's pretty intense, but it highlights the fact that the Puritans understood something. That to withhold sexual intimacy from your spouse is a sin against God, and it's a sin against your spouse. Okay? So, sex is a commanded service. Secondly, sex is a call to sacrifice. Sex within marriage is a call to sacrifice. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So one of the things that God makes really clear in his word when we study this subject is that God not only cares who we love, but how we love them. The relationship with our spouse isn't supposed to be rooted in a passionate lust, that uses one another for for sensual, selfish pleasures. But rather, it is a passionate love that doesn't so much seek your own pleasure, but the posture is is seeking the pleasure for your spouse, hoping for them to be delighted. And ultimately, you being delighted in in them being satisfied. And this, this is a wonderful idea, but... You could, you could feel it when you read that verse. And people are like, does that mean what I think it means? It means what you think it means. But it puts you in a very vulnerable posture. Pause. Single people, be really careful who you marry. Be really careful. A, a husband does not have authority over his own body. But through marriage, he has handed over the rights of his body to his wife. And in the same way, the wife, through marriage, has handed over the rights of her body to her husband. That is a vulnerable feeling. How do you you practically live this out? Well, sometimes a husband wants sex and says to his wife, your body belongs to me. Fellas, I would encourage you not to use that exact phrase, but here's your theology. Okay, so it's different ways we can work on that in a private session. Okay, so your body belongs to me. And there's times when she says, yes, it does. And your body belongs to me, and then they're together. But sometimes she'll say, well, I don't want your body on my body. What then how do you, how do you proceed? this is where both husband and wife have to remember the command of service and the call to sacrifice. Remember that in marriage, you want to outdo each other in service and bringing each other joy. You've got to learn to to yield to each other. So, if she says, I'm too tired for sex, but he says, well, I was kind of really hoping for sex tonight, she should give in. And He should relent. That's that's the way it should be. His heart should be, I'm not going to make you do this no matter how bad I'm desiring it. And her heart should be, I'm here for you no matter how tired I am. And now what you have is you have a, a standoff of kindness rather than one of selfishness. And that's a whole lot easier to navigate. It's a whole lot easier to navigate. And, and in the end, so, so how does it work? Well, whoever has enough grace in the moment will yield. And I would say that it should be both ways often. To the husbands. Still under number two, sex is a call to sacrifice. Husbands, serve your wives in this area. Don't just rush through your lovemaking. Don't forget her needs, and don't forget look her in the eyes and to tell her that you love her, focus on her. Think of her deep longings and desires. Don't let your mind wander off to other fantasies. She is not just an instrument for your sexual satisfaction. She is your wife. She's the one that you asked God to give you, and he gave you. She is a stewardship from God Almighty to you. Enjoy her. Talk to her. Pray. Pray with her. And there may be times that she is just laying down her life for you in this area. And you need to thank her. Don't take advantage. Also, remember, that true intimacy with your wife doesn't just happen in the bedroom. We are to be, as husbands, always wooing her and drawing her close by the way you live and the way that you love her. One woman said that uh, the sound of her husband vacuuming was foreplay. That's how a lot of ladies, they think that way. So foreplay begins with doing the dishes and doing the laundry. Serve her and compliment her and thank her for all she does. Husbands, love your wives. Don't Don't just hop in bed at the end of the night and expect her to celebrate your willingness, okay? That's not... It's not, it's not the way it works. I've heard it co- compared that, that, that women are like crockpots and, and men are like microwaves, okay? And it, it, it's it's an all-the-time process with your wife. You're constantly keeping her warm through your affection and your love and your service and your care. And wives, serve your husbands. If your sex drive is less than your husband's, and it doesn't have to be, but if it is, ask God to give you grace to consider him more important than yourself. Ask God to stir your heart towards serving your husband in this way. Ask your husband uh, ways that he thinks that the two of you can improve this area of your relationship. And, and please hear me. Do not be offended if he desires a little more creativity or a little more responsiveness or whatever it may be. These are common. I mean, like every single Conversation we have with couples—it's these are common things. It's not unique to you. And guard your heart, ladies, from using sex to control and to manipulate your husbands. Well, I'll do this if you'll do that. That's not—that's not service. It's contract. That's not—that's not love. What if we have different sex drives and desires for creativity? These are questions that I've been getting. Well, you manage that by loving each other as you would want to be loved. The spouse who has a stronger sex drive should not be demanding. The spouse who has a weaker sex drive should not be withholding. But through prayer and communication and more prayer and more communication, you'll meet somewhere in the middle in a way that both of you will be able to perceive that you're both trying to. You're both trying. You're both compromising. You're both giving. You're both surrendering rights and laying down life and, and denying yourself in some way. That should be, there should be that constant tension for couples, that they, they know that about each other. That's trust. And God uses that to deepen relationships. Share with each other honestly about desires and dislikes. Communication and sex are always inseparable. They must be. Then re- regarding the question about creativity, God has given much freedom between a husband and a wife, so explore and enjoy. But there is a supreme rule, and the supreme rule is this: that you never, you never force or guilt your spouse into doing something that they feel is degrading, or damaging, or demeaning. You are to be a servant not a slave master. I was once approached by a couple. uh, I was doing a speaking engagement somewhere. And they came up to me and he said they needed to talk about their sex life because they were having some issues. And he talked to me about how they needed to to have more creativity and more spice and she needed to kind of give in to some of these things. And as he was talking, I I could see that she was trembling. And there were tears in her eyes. And I, I asked her, I said... Tell me what's going on here. And she just cried. And she said, He just makes me do things that I don't want to do. And he makes me he makes me feel like I'm just some outlet for his fantasies. It was one of the saddest things I think I've ever seen. That this woman who's to be cared for in the way that Christ cared for his bride is being abused husbands, wives. Creativity is fine. But you love one another and you protect each other. That honors God and brings him glory. What if one of us has a medical condition that hinders our sex life? The most important thing that you need to know is that you pursue each other and that you be tender-hearted toward each other. Come alongside your spouse and empathize and say, T- tell me what it's like for you to have this and work at it with prayer and with patience. And for some who have, whether it be physical or psychological struggles, it can be really difficult. But remember that there are seasons in love. And you've got to be patient and you've got to be sacrificial. So saying to your spouse, well, you've got to get fixed so we can have sex is not loving. But rather they, they need to know that, that they're listened to and understood. And please hear me, there is no shame in going to a doctor if there are physical things that are going on. Go, go to a doctor. That's fine. It's good. It's not just fine. You you have to do that. You have to. If there's something physically going on. And there is no shame about being open, as you guys are comfortable with, open with other godly couples and talking about things or coming to your pastor's. Listen, your pastors aren't like experts or something, but, but we, we, we can help you think through these areas. And the last thing I want to say on this point is that the whole, your whole relationship as a couple is intertwined. So what that means is that problems outside the bedroom will produce problems inside the bedroom. So if there's bitterness and unforgiveness and tension in other areas, know that it will feed into this area. And that's why you have constantly got to be ushering one another to the throne of grace and speaking about Christ and his death for sinners and his resurrection and the hope that we have in him, not just to become Christians, but, but to abide as, as husbands and wife who want to honor Christ. Constantly usher one another back to that throne of grace, not just in the bedroom, but in all areas, because it's all connected. Then the final thing is, number three, that sex is a commanded safeguard. Sex is a commanded safeguard. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, there's a normal expectation for husbands and wives to be intimate. To not do this is sin because it deprives your spouse and it deprives the relationship. Well, how often should a couple be having sex? More questions. The short answer is that ultimately it's up to every single couple. But every couple should have honest and candid conversations about it. And we do this in premarital counseling. So I'll have a, I'll have a you know, uh, the guy write down on a piece of paper, and a girl write down on a piece of paper how many times they're kind of expecting to have sex in a week. And that's a very telling time. And normally, by God's grace, it's pretty close. But sometimes it ain't close. That's a good opportunity for some some conversation. But that kind of conversation isn't just for couples who have no idea what they're about to do, but it's for couples who are continually learning this, 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 this part of their relationship. So, for married couples, revisit that question often, because there's different seasons in marriage. So, if both spouses desire sex daily or every other day, feel free to enjoy. If both have a low desire, I would want to investigate and I want to know why. Is is there is there bitterness? Is there conflict that's unresolved? Have you kind of just don't feel like being around each other anymore? Those are all sin. And it's not a good reason. Even if both of you say, "Ah, we'll just we'll just we'll just be like this," no. God says, "No, you won't." God says, "Cut it out." God says, "That's sin." He says, "Y'all need to get together." we need to work through these things. Do not just settle for dysfunction. With that, you, you may need to schedule it, okay? You, you may need to do that. Some people are like, well, that's not spontaneous. Well, nobody ever said, the Bible didn't say the spontaneous sex is the best kind of sex. That's, that's what Hollywood tells you. Sacrificial, committed, intentional times of coming together as a husband and wife, that honors God. I know couples who have to do that. Do that if that's what you need to do. So I don't need to know how often married couples are having sex necessarily to encourage you to have more. Because I promise you, you're probably not having enough. So, favorite part of my job? Husbands and wives? There's no evening service, okay? So, there you go. Husbands, last thing. How does Satan uniquely tempt married couples who aren't having sex? How does Satan tempt married couples who aren't having sex? 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan is always prowling around looking for someone to desire, to devour. And it says here that you're going to be tempted because of a lack of self-control. So what happens is when a husband and wife are not coming together... Satan, he sees that and he knows that. And that's prime opportunity for him to get in there and to get the guy's mind going off or get the girl's mind going off towards pornography or looking around on Facebook about your old friend who used to, whatever that is. And you know, this person at work, they talk to me. Oh yeah, well, my husband doesn't talk to me. I wish they did. And like, he is crafty and he is coming after you. And you've got to know nobody's above that. So, so God commands husbands and wives to come together to protect yourselves. So, please, husbands, let's start with wives, don't don't help the devil tempt your husband by not serving him in this way. And husbands, do not help the devil in tempting your wife by not serving her in this way. Now there's a thousand other things. I literally cut eight pages off of my manuscript. And you're like, how? That's the longest sermon I've ever heard. I don't know. I'm just telling you. There's a lot on this issue, okay? But I want you to know that wherever you are in all of this, sex, because it is such an intimate part of all of our lives, that in this room, there are all kinds of people with all kinds of different scars, wishes that haven't been fulfilled, dreams that haven't been fulfilled, things that you'd give anything to take away. And what you've got to know, that all of us, that the hope ultimately is that we have a God who heals every wound and can fix any marriage. And for marriages that are about to happen, that he can cultivate a, a, a life together that can glorify him. And that happens through the grace that he gives, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you've got to know that all of this that we're talking about, that there is a God who made all of this and we've all turned away from him. But that in Christ he has given grace. So come unto him and be forgiven and receive healing. I'm going to be happy to, to take questions about this, not now, but uh, feel free to email me or set up times with pastors. We want to help talk through these things together. We want to be a, we want to be a church where it has couples who have thriving sex lives for the glory of God. Let's pray to that. Just pray with me. Father in heaven, That was a lot of stuff, and God, we know that you are the God who who gives all of this, and we just pray that you would help husbands and wives to love one another, to protect one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. Father, we pray for those who are not married, that you would give grace, that you would guard and guide their hearts. We pray for our single sisters, that you would give them godly husbands. God, we pray that even now, you would raise up men for them. We pray for our godly young single men, that God, you would raise up godly spouses for them. God, we pray for marriages that are are really hard right now, really difficult. God, we pray that you might heal even the deepest of wounds, and your grace, even beginning today, might be abundant on them. Lord, we need much help. And much mercy. We pray this in the name of Jesus.